Welcome everyone to this week's Invisible Not Broken. I got an email last night and everyone who's been listening knows my wish list is to talk to someone who's actually been on the other side of pain management and has been in the the uh, white coat side of things or the scrub side of things. And I got this great email from Brianna who not only is like my dream list of like someone who's been through this, but has been through this. She has been on the other side of it and she is also on this side of it with Eller Stainless. So <laughs> Welcome, my fellow zebra. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you having me on. That's such a nice introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm so glad. No, I like you were like my dream person. I was like, I really couldn't have asked for more from another person. To, like, just randomly out of the blue, send me an email and go, "Hey, can I be on the show? I have a different perspective." I'm like, you don't just have a different perspective. You have the perspective on pain management. <laughs> Thank you. That's so, really kind of you. <laughs> yeah, I saw your, um, we connected on LinkedIn and I was like, look, I want to be involved with this person. That's awesome. Like Monica's doing it. She's out there, like, you know, getting the word out. So I was, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So the randomness of the world is someone um, contacted me to be doing just short videos on their new um, social media site. And I was like, oh, okay. And then in the randomness of the way I think, I clicked on, started filling out my profile and it's like LinkedIn. I'm like, I haven't been on LinkedIn in like five years. I should probably update things. So last night I went onto LinkedIn and updated my profile, updated everything. And that's, I guess, why you found me was just randomness of the world. So I'm so glad Kismet worked out for all of us. That's great. So if, I think we could start with, um, was which one was first, when you were a physician's assistant or when you got diagnosed? I actually got diagnosed when I was 20, so that was before I was Whoa. a PA. Yeah, I know, which is like a really short diagnosis time. Um, I started uh, with symptomatic uh, issues with my knees where my patellas were dislocating, um, which are my kneecaps for like non-medical peeps out there. Um, and basically I was really active, played sports. And when I was, by the time I was 13, I was already in physical therapy for, um, having my kneecaps kind of dislocate on a regular basis. So, um, ended up having surgery, um, on my shoulder first when I was 16, cause I played softball and one day I swung the bat and my shoulder just kept going. <laughs> so it was <laughs> most zebras I'm sure can probably relate with that, um, But I had surgery when I was 16 and then had knee surgery at 18, um, had another shoulder surgery at age 20, and my physical therapist that had been working with me for a few years was like, girl, this is unusual that you've had this many surgeries at this age and things are just getting so hypermobile and so loose. And it was actually my physical therapist who had heard of EDS and actually suggested that I might have it. Um, so with the hypermobile type, there's no genetic marker. So it's a clinical diagnosis. And he actually did my whole screen for me. And we went through my family history. We did the Biden score, um, which is like our hypermobility test. Um, and what, you know, we got on track by the time I was 20, um, which I'm very fortunate that I got diagnosed that early in life, that I was surrounded by medical professionals and, Um, My physical therapist was actually one of my clinical instructors because at the time I was going to school for athletic training for my undergraduate degree. So um, had I not chosen that career path, I don't think I would have gotten diagnosed. So I'm very, very fortunate that I had the privilege of being surrounded by healthcare professionals. So that's an impressive story. I, I'm actually a little jealous, but it's an impressive, I mean, I'm, I'm in my forties and I didn't get diagnosed until my mid thirties. And that was after a Frankenstein level of surgeries before they, and I had the same thing at the patellas when I'd bend my knee, my knees, my kneecaps would go all the way to the outer sides of my, my mm-hmm. legs. Yeah. You'd think oh, that so then they would have thought something, but unless you have someone who knows what Eller Stainless is, I mean, we're called zebras because when you hear hoofbeats, you're supposed to think of horses, not zebras, but we're zebras. <laughs> right. There. Yeah. And there's plenty of healthcare professionals out there who kind of tend to think that when a female, you know, complains of things that it must be like a psych issue or that it must be like, Oh, it's, it's your period. That was what I got a lot on my way to, to getting diagnosed. So I was like, I don't think my shoulders would be dislocating if it was my period. 
And that's a doctor who does not understand anatomy at all. Right? Yeah, two different body regions, but... Oh, um, my God. If I face-palmed any harder, I would go unconscious. That's, like... Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. It really um, has been a long journey for a lot of people. Um, I went to the... Uh, EDS conference in 2017 in Las Vegas, and they had a video of all of the people, or probably close to 100 people over like a two to three minute video, and it was literally just clips of people saying how long their symptom time to diagnosis time was, and it literally brought me to tears because there are people that are saying that they had taken 70 years to get their diagnosis and taken 50-something years and you know, 12 years, 25 years, 72 years, like it was just, uh, it just broke my heart. And it was really, I think the catalyst for me to say, like, this is not going to be the same reality for my generation of zebras. Like I am in a position where I have had the medical backgrounds and have the connections in the healthcare world that we can help people. And, it's unacceptable that anyone has to suffer that long with, especially a disease as multi-systemic and really life-altering as Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. So I um, I just decided at that point that that was the direction that my career was going to go into, and um, wow. I'm really glad that I went. So. so you went to the conference, and then from there you decided to, to go into medicine? Well, I was already a PA. Um, my amazing boss, because um, I've been working in pain management for about five years, and um, my amazing boss actually is the one who said that he saw online about the EDS conference, and he was like, you should go, and it would be great so you could learn more about your condition, and I know we at least have one other EDS patient, so go on over and learn, and it was amazing. It was just uh I felt like I was home, you know, meeting people that really could relate on a level that, like, I don't wish that anybody could ever relate to me on, you know, but when you do meet someone that has gone through, um, you know, the surgeries and being dismissed and, um, as I call it, medical PTSD, where, like, you have to, you know, yes. fight. <laughs> yes, like, it's literally like it's traumatizing to go to a healthcare professional, especially the ER. Like if you've been, you know, told that you're crazy or told that you're making something up, or if you've been sent home, like as symptomatic as you were now with the added stigma and shame of like asking for help. Like, I don't feel like how our medical system, like, you know, allows people to continue practicing with that kind of mindset. But um, you know, from the standpoint of a healthcare provider, I can see how someone who didn't get into medicine for the right reasons could get really jaded and hear the laundry list of symptoms that people with multi-systemic diseases sometimes present with and just say, nope, it's just easier to say that they're crazy and move on to my next patient with a cough and a cold, you know? So it, um, it really was, uh, I think, Things just kind of worked out in a way that um, I think going to that conference not only kind of propelled my career in a different way, but I profoundly believe that it saved my life um, because a few months later, uh, I was diagnosed with a spinal CSF leak, um, and that was what had explained my symptoms of headaches and brain fog and uh, vision changes and the loss of my period and hearing changes and balance disturbance and all of these things that I had been told were just, you know, oh, no big deal. The tests look fine. I had gone to probably 15 different specialists over the course of three years. And um, when I went to um, the differential diagnosis of headaches lecture, um, CSF leak, just it it checked off all of the marks, um, you know, all the boxes, um, it lined up perfectly. And I was like, that's me. I know that's what I have. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> Can you explain to everyone what a CFS leak is? Sure. Um, so CSF stands for cerebrospinal fluid, which is the clear fluid that coats our brain and our spinal cord. Um, and that's the fluid that helps um, rinse the waste from our brain from just like the metabolic processes of thinking and metabolism and controlling our hormones and such. 
Um, and the spinal fluid recycles um, through our bodies six times a day on average for a normal person. And so um, the membrane that holds that fluid in is called the dura, and it's a tough layer. And in most normal people, it's supposed to be about the thickness of, like, if you picture a drum and the skin on that drum, kind of like a very thin piece of leather almost. Um, but um, with EDS, our tissues are um, a little bit more flimsy, and mine apparently was so flimsy that that membrane, my dura, um, tore in a couple of different places. Um, so I had slow leakage of CSF for about three years, and over time, when your brain can't float anymore, it starts to drop slowly as the fluid comes out. So um, all of the symptoms that I had from like a hormonal perspective and from a vision perspective, all of those nerves sit at the base of our brain, kind of on the underside of the brain. And uh, most of those structures on my brain sustained some damage because my brain was essentially sitting on the base of my skull rather than floating in my head. And by the time they found it, it was actually starting to herniate out of my head into my neck. Um, so it was pretty serious. I had developed um, a lot of tics and kind of movement disorders where my hand would just kind of shake throughout the day. And I couldn't, like, grasp things. And I lost a lot of coordination. Um, I also started noticing that, like, every time I would stand up, I was getting really faint um, and there's another condition that kind of overlaps with EDS called POTS, which stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Um, and a lot of people don't know what causes their POTS and they just get told, oh, you know, drink more fluids or, oh, supplement with, you know, electrolytes or what have you. And so I tried all of those things um, and still wasn't getting relief, still was getting really bad headaches and back pain and, um, you know, it got to the point where every time I would stand up, my heart rate would double. So it would literally go from like 60 beats per minute to 120 beats per minute just from standing. Um, and I'd get really faint and out of breath. And um, we ended up going to the hospital. Um, and when I told them, you know, hey, I've seen a neurosurgeon, I have orders for, you know, spine MRIs, and we think that I might have a spontaneous spinal fluid leak. Um, I went to a local hospital and in order to like not doctor shame, I won't say where it was, but they literally drug screened me before they put an EKG on me. Um, so they apparently thought that, you know, I was a physician assistant turned, you know, like tweaker or something and thought that I was just <laughs> okay. off my rocker. You weren't even I, asking yeah. for pain meds though. You were asking for not. an EKG. Right. I was asking for an EKG and an MRI, and I brought literally my stat MRI orders from the neurosurgeon with me, and they thought it was just like I was insane. Um, so they gave me fluids, and they just admitted me overnight. They gave me um, a bag of saline <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lecture about getting my emotional health in check. Um <laughs> Sorry, it's like, we're going to emotionally traumatize you, but please keep your emotions in check. That's, that's fantastic. Right. I, I, exactly. I, that's that's exactly. efficient. Yeah. And when they did the MR or the EKG, my heart rate was 150 beats per minute. And it had been like that for like an hour and a half. And I was like, this is why I came to the hospital. Like, What, that's not, not normal? 150 beats per minute isn't normal? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, of course I was getting like out of breath and I could barely talk. And so they just thought that I was just like having a panic attack. And, um, there's a kind of a derogatory term that EMTs use, um, for Hispanic women, especially, and it's called Hispanic panic. Um, and that is when a female Hispanic woman presents to the ER with a panic attack or with, you know, unusual symptoms and they're really worked up and, you know, obviously, if you feel like you're having, you know, heart palpitations or something is very wrong with you and there's a language barrier, like you're going to be panicked, you're going to be concerned. Like I have done ER rotations and, you know, I work in an outpatient clinic now, so I don't see a ton of emergencies. But um, it's been my experience that when human beings present with an emergency, they're typically panicked. So um, <laughs> it's... Um, yeah, there's some really, uh, 
significant like racial and gender biases that um, you know have to really be addressed in medicine in order for these diseases that primarily affect women to be taken a little bit more seriously, in my opinion. So, so thank you for saying that. I've gotten some flack before because I talk a lot about I look like a soccer mom. I am very pale and I still get a ton of crap when I'm in there asking for pain meds when I have a major dislocation. And I always say, look, I'm privileged and I get this. So if you are not in this level of privilege, I can't even imagine. And I've gotten flack from other people who are in the medical community emailing me going, that's not true. No, no, everyone gets treated the same in the ER. Everyone gets treated the same in pain management. So thank you so much for backing me up on (laughs) that this is actually a thing, that if you are a black woman, a Hispanic woman, a Native American woman, a, I'm sorry, I'm not going to go through all the different races, but you will be treated differently as a man or a woman with a different skin color. And if you're a woman, oh my God, I'm sorry, if you are a woman with disabilities or a woman with a different socioeconomic level, these are all things that will deeply affect how you're treated, how seriously you're treated. Absolutely. And it's, it's really like, um, you know, pretty surprised. I mean, I should say it's not surprising anymore, which is, is really disappointing to say because, um, as I think provider, 2016 and 2017 and 2018 have shown us that surprise, we, we need to like lower our bar for shock. Like we're all going to die of POTS. Every one of us, whether we have it or not, these last three years are pretty much going to give us all heart attacks. Agreed. Yeah, I've I've been uh, really disappointed with uh, some of the, <laughs> the policymakers. I'm but. sorry, disappointed is like not even like covering it with me. Like, yeah, um, like sheer unadulterated rage might be coming close for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I just started my day with my like 20 minute like positive affirmation <laughs> and like positive mindset. So I'm just, okay, like, so everyone is looking. <laughs> watching this on YouTube, you see how glowy and beautiful she is. And I don't know if I'm going to show up, but you will see this bedraggled creature that has been put here. She looked at affirmations this morning. I looked at Twitter news this morning. This is the difference here. I mean, aside from probably about 15 years, this is the difference here. I'm still twitching over what I read over Twitter this morning, um, which I know is not where you should get your news, but I actually find I get more real-time news from more sources. Like, I can actually look and go, okay, this is what BBC is saying. This is what Routers is saying. And these are what Fox News, because I'm a big believer, you look at all of it. Like, I want to know what Brett Bart and Fox News is saying about each thing, as well as CNN. And I know that, look, I believe me, like, it's fantastic when my heart rate drops. I can read Brett Bart and Fox News, and all of a sudden, my heart rate goes way back up. It's it's almost curing. It's like cardio from reading the news. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Oh, good. Yes, absolutely. Last night, my husband was like, you need to knock it off. And so we went on to um, Animal Facts, the BuzzFeed Animal Facts, which nice. has me, like, rolling. It's the funniest thing I've ever read. But it's like news, bunny videos, news, sloths. <laughs> like, I, yeah, I feel like you need to, cardio. like, temper it with, like, happiness, right? Like, there's a lot of, like things to be depressed about when you read the news and you're like wait what justice kavanaugh's hearing is uh, still going on when they've only released four percent of uh the documents that are necessary for the senate to make an actual like judgment on the character and like history of this individual's policy making but like but you he, know supposedly we're the hysterical ones for teams. protesting <laughs> Hey, he's a good guy. He coaches because we yeah. didn't see anything wrong with the coaching of girls in gymnastics or you know, not saying any that he's doing that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that right. just because you are involved in doing some good things does not mean that you're right. involved in bad things. I'm so sorry. I totally yeah. like scale this over to politics, but hey, no, it's okay. You're speaking my language. I was going to say I was raised Catholic and we know um, about what some of those good Catholic priests do. So I, <laughs> I'm a big and nuns do that. not gender biases there is a lot about the nuns right now too i like and this is true this is- <laughs> I don't think that like if you just put a qualifier like I am part of this community makes you a good person like you actually I, I know I have some of my favorite people are Catholics some of my best friends are Catholics right. um, but none of that makes you a good person it's actually your okay. personal actions that make you a good or bad person. My husband's a high school teacher. So like as his kids would say, they would say hundred emoji, like, you know, the little like hundred (laughs) sign emoji. They like literally say that as if it's 
like a word that you say. Oh, I'm old. I am so old. <laughs> I, I, I don't think my kids even try anymore telling me what's like new and cool. I'd be like, all right, mom, that's, that's, that's darling. Let me help you with your gifts. That, that's where the little things move around, mom. Like, yeah. Like, I, yeah, I know, but I think that's an excellent point that you make about people, you know, saying, well, I'm this, so I couldn't be that, you know, like ascribing this like morality to their title, like automatically, like it gives them some, you know, like past to be a terrible human being, you know, like there's, uh, and I find that that's the case with any profession, like including healthcare, because I have the privilege of knowing so many amazing healthcare professionals. Like my team at Cedar sinai legitimately like saved my life. And um, the team that I have locally and my doctors that I have now are just beautiful human beings that are doing healthcare for the right reason. Um, I have the privilege of working for a physician that is probably one of the kindest human beings that I've ever met that sincerely, like, does not do it for the money. He you does know it. You know you're getting everyone like, really jealous right now. Like, I can feel, <laughs> like, across the globe people turning green with envy. And by the way, you are totally ready to start your own blog. You are absolutely ready to do a podcast because you just took someone who is a guest who is off the rails on a topic and brought it back to the topic. You're awesome. <laughs> you you got this. You can – I will promote the hell out of your blog and podcast when you are ready. Um, you brought up PTSD, uh, medical PTSD, which is my new favorite term. I will be like putting this in big letters across, so go to show notes. Um, and I really wanted to ask you this because it's something I would love to ask my own pain meds, uh, my own pain doctors. Please forgive me, everyone. I am on a lot of painkillers right now, so I'm trying to stay as focused as I can. Uh, but talking about medical PTSD, the big fear is, is that your pain levels get to a 10 and you go to the emergency room and you ask for help because you need it. And everyone I know, at least here in California, I don't know how it is in the other states. I'm assuming no better. Um, but we're all terrified we'll get on the list. And that is the list where you are deemed a pain management secret. Like you're looking for drugs. Right. And, and that's. That's a real thing for sure. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's really unfortunate because it creates huge barriers to care. And, um, you know, there's a database, at least in the state of California, called the Cures Program. Um, and uh, it's essentially a list of all the controlled substances that a person is prescribed on an outpatient basis. So, like, if you have surgery, for example, it doesn't document, like, you know, what you received in anesthesia. But if you were sent home from that hospital visit with, like, three Norcos, um, you're, that gets documented on that list. And so every time that someone presents to the ER with a complaint of pain, um, protocol in the state of California with the idea in mind of preventing, you know, the uh, overprescribing and diversion and misuse of opioids. Um, they check this cures report, and uh, basically, if there's a person who has, you know, a fill of Norco or a pain medication within the last 30 days there's automatically a stigma that most ER providers will go into this visit with saying, okay, well, this patient, you know, must be here for meds, you know, and they just go into the visit very defensive, like, you know, expecting to just like send the patient home and to just say, go to pain management and have them handle it. And it's like, that's not a, that's not a viable option. Like, if this was something that, you know, I patients could have handled on an outpatient basis, I would be at my doctor's office. I wouldn't be here, like, with a compromised immune system, sitting around people who may have MRSA or people who, you know, have pneumonia and people who are really, really sick. Like, but I'm a human being who, like, is telling you, like, I'm really, really sick as well and I need your help emergently. And that is why I'm here. Like, it's not because I'm trying to, like, make your job harder, like Dr. So-and-so, or it's not because... You know, like, I just had nothing better to do at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's... Um, I'm sorry, that's supposed to be a laugh, and it came out a cackle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they yeah, ask, so, like, so. most of, like, unless it's my regular doctor who knows me, if I have to see a different physician for something, they're like, oh, there's no way you dislocated your shoulder or your tibia or your femur. Uh, because you would be, um, you'd be in the ER right now. And I don't go to the ER anymore. 
And that's not saying you should follow my example. I'm just saying I don't. The last time I went to the ER, I had my brachius, this guy here, was here, right by my boob. Like, it was swung all the way forward. And the, and I'm sorry, you might be this age, but the darling 24-year-old resident on rotation who I didn't know if I was supposed to babysit or not, first (laughs) asked if my husband was beating me, but asked at the same time that my husband was there and my mother was there and didn't look up from his chart, which I thought was adorable. So I schooled him on proper bedside manner in the most loving way that my snarky little self can. And he looked at it. He saw that my brachius was here and I could fit my entire fist into the the joint socket. And he's like, oh, isn't that normal for you? I'm like, I don't know. Can you do that? Because you might need medical attention if you can do this. It was, and I, I didn't take any pain meds and I didn't take their pain meds. But when I go in, I have a very high level of narcotics prescribed to me because I dislocate every day. And I silly thought, yeah, I thought if my oxy can't cover this, I should go to the ER like my pain doctor said I should. And then I learned, no, you well, I shouldn't because then I end up looking like a pain. Yeah, I just wanted someone to help me relocate my shoulder. That was it. I just wanted someone to give me an IV with enough muscle relaxers that I'd be able to snap it back into place, but right. did not work out right. well. So do you have any suggestions as someone who's maybe seen all sides of this behavior? How should we go into the ER? How should we talk to our pain management doctor the first time we see them? Um, so the thing that I do that's been really super helpful. And um, when I go to the ER, they're just kind of like, Oh my gosh, like this is a great idea. Um, I actually have a three page form that I take with me. Um, and mine is, it could be two pages, it could be one page, it doesn't matter. But basically, it is the equivalent of having my own uh, like medical chart that I bring with me condensed into what's called a soap note, which is the standard, um, you know, progress note that a medical provider will have. Um, when they see you in an office visit. So um, it will contain um, first a brief salutation that's like, hello, thank you for taking the time to be on my medical team. Um, I am writing this for you because I have a complex medical history and I recognize that, you know, if I'm here in the ER that I may not be the most accurate historian um, because I'm, you know, riddled with pain or whatever the, you know, the, the issue is that day. But basically, um, it has a list of my medical conditions, the surgeries I've had, the medicines that I currently take, the medicines that I have tried and failed, and what those side effects are. Um, and then I have a list of my medical professionals with their contact phone numbers. Okay, um, I have an ask for you. <laughs> I have a favor. Would you be willing to just set that up in a form that I, without your information that we could have for people to download at the show Absolutely. notes? You rock. This is going to be our like super helpful, useful episode. Um, so go to the show notes if you are listening to this. Go to invisiblenotbroken.com or. Um, I'll have a link, and we will have this to download somewhere. I will I will get techie enough where I will ask my children how I can set this up as a download file. Yeah, honestly, like, I, um, I'll send it to you in a Word document, so that way it's still, like, you can edit it in Word. Um, I will, I'll just take my, you know, birthday off of there, but, um, I yeah, just take all of your stuff. Off. If you could just give us a clean one so we could, that, thank sure. you. That'd be amazing. Sure. What are your absolute do not say, do not do to avoid getting flagged? You know, I would say that that's like... I mean, aside from living in pain, I seem, that seems to be the flag, is living in pain. But anything that we I can know, control. I know. And, you know, it's, it's really tough to say because every person that you're going to encounter in the ER ha- is going to have a different, you know, mindset. Every person is an individual. And so, like, you might have a great healthcare provider. Oh, I saw you pop that back in right now. <laughs> Yeah, all the swearing that is being done in this episode is being done silently. (laughs) Yeah, that's how we learn to suffer, honestly, is just in silence. Like, we, you know, are just... this. Oh, blood rush! Oh, that's awesome! I just located this, Yeah, I was gonna say, you got your fingers moving and everything. That's awesome. I I just located this, like, five minutes into our talk, and I just got it back in. (laughs) You did a great job, though. Thank you! Yeah, and you kept your composure marvelously, I must say, like, really. (laughs) Like, if I wasn't, if I didn't live that and I, like, wasn't trained to, like, recognize what that looks like, I wouldn't have noticed. (laughs) I mean, like, we've talked 
about this on the podcast, and uh, Kira and I did a whole thing about chronic pain, and we don't get taken seriously in the ER because, first off, I'm snarky, and I can't turn that off for more than 10 minutes. If I'm in pain, that drops down to 45 seconds. And so when they're asking me what my pain level is, I always have to ask them, is it my pain level or yours? Because those are going to be really different things. And I learned how to ask that because I'd be like, I don't know, it's a 7. So then they'd be like, well, there's no way you dislocated. But that's a 10. Like, you dislocated, like, a shoulder? That's a 10. You're screaming on the ground. I'm like, actually. So I've learned to ask them that question just to, like, make sure that we're we're the same level. I did have the best explanation of level 10 for anyone, which um, when I was in labor, where I was in a lot of pain and screaming and being snarky as hell, uh, the lady was like, well, we'll know when you're at a 10. I'm like, well, how would I know when I'm at a 10? And she said, when you're not snarky, <laughs> when you're not being a smart ass is when yeah. we get yeah, to level 10. literally capable of doing anything else. But right? like, yeah, but screaming. Right. And I was like, I don't know what that feels. Oh, now I know what that feels. I've got it now. Thank you. I now forever know what level 10 feels like. It's when I'm yeah. not able to be snarky. Got it. <laughs> Excellent. Well done. Yeah. I I think that's fair. Um, I would say it's not so much of a, like, don't say this or whatever. Like, I would just, like, the thing that helps me is that I think about, like, probably my more stressful days at work because we've all had, you know, a day of life or a day of work where we're just, oh, my gosh, like, can't wait till it's time to go home. I want to get back to my loved ones or whatever. Like, people have crap days sometimes, you know. Um, but I go into the ER assuming that I'm going to meet a healthcare provider, basically preparing for the worst, hope for the best kind of thing. And so I assume that maybe it's, you know, somebody who is just having a terrible day and they, you know, are ready to go home. It's the end of their shift. And I really just try to be as kind as possible to them, um, which is very counterintuitive. I wasn't always that way, you know, especially as a patient, I was that girl that was, like swearing and like just really like not combative but just like well I'm sitting here with my shoulder dislocated like what do you want me to you know like that kind of like energy that I was putting out and like it's it unfortunately like and it shouldn't do this like in a perfect world because like healthcare providers should understand that like when they work in an ER like they're there to help people who are having a worse day than them obviously because they're still at work and this person is in the hospital for help. Um, but I think having that form really helps because they will look at it but prior to even coming into seeing you if you hand that form to the nurse on intake. Um, and it really helps them understand like, okay, this isn't, you know, like some Joe Q person who's here because, you know, they got an owie. Like this is a woman with a complex medical history who's had six, seven, eight, ten surgeries, um, who has tried multiple medications and they are here for help. Like it really helps just kind of like, as much as I hate to say it, it kind of like gives your backstory and like makes you more human, so to speak, because when we're in medical school or PA school or, you know, nursing school or whatever it is, we're used to reading these patient histories in this really neat, like, you know, patient presents with seven out of 10 chest pain, complaining of a three-day duration with progressive worsening and radiation to the left shoulder. Like these kind of like really like regimented, like buzzword kind of things. And so when they see someone who's just like, oh, my God, like they don't know, like they, they get frazzled, like we're, you know, we get into that fight or flight mode and they're not as capable sometimes unless they're like really, really seasoned in the ER and they've got, you know, five, 10 years under their belt. But a lot of times, um, you know, I'll admit it as a healthcare professional, I have seen patients in severe pain that it scares me. Like I, I, I there's that moment of human nature where you second guess yourself and say, okay, I hope I can help this person. And like, sometimes people that maybe aren't as emotionally, uh, aware, um, will project that back onto the patient. So sometimes there's a degree of like not wanting to appear like they don't know what they're talking about or not wanting to appear ignorant in front of a patient because then they think that a patient is just going to like second guess their medical decision-making. Um, but, I would say for the healthcare providers that are listening to this, like, honestly, one of the most comforting things that I've ever had a doctor say to me is, I don't know how to help you, but I'm willing to learn how to help you. Um, 
I don't know about your disease, but tell me about it, educate me about it, and I'll do my best to help you. Because that's like real human reality, you know what I mean? Like no one can know everything, but there are some doctors that I've encountered that have maybe read of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and have seen that picture of the guy like taking his neck skin way over here. And I've literally had ER doctors come up to me and pull on my hand skin and say, well, your skin is not stretchy enough so you don't have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Um, so it's, it's been, um, you know, definitely a mixed bag. Like my healthcare team that I've assembled has definitely not been like, you know, something that's fallen into my lap. It's taken like seeking out professionals that are EDS aware. It's taken having a significant amount of like resources online and support online to like find a team of medical professionals. And it's literally skewed across Southern California by over a hundred miles. So it's, you know, definitely a, um, it's a journey, like, to get literally, but, um, you know, I would say, sorry, like circle back, um, back to the, um, the ER thing. I would just say, like, try if, if at all humanly possible to be kind, um, which like honestly shouldn't be our burden to carry as patients. But, um, when you, like realize that it's just, it's just another human, you know, it's, they're human in a white coat and yes, they've gone to more school, but it doesn't mean that they've ever had the experience of seeing a patient like you. They might be just as scared as you are. Um, and you know, they don't want to tell you that because it, you know, it's scary for them to think like, gosh, like I might be responsible for hurting a patient or for, you know, giving the wrong treatment. And sometimes, especially with people who maybe don't have as much, uh, like life experience or maybe not as much grit, like some of the, especially like younger and younger generations sometimes seem to, you know, be very used to having that instant gratification, like life on their cell phone kind of mentality and don't really have the interpersonal skills developed. Um, you know, it's easier just to say, get out of my ER than to say, I don't know. Um, it's easier to say like this patient's a med seeker than I don't know how to help them. Um, so it's really like, it's, um, it's a, it's a difficult spot to be in as a rare disease patient because you're essentially having to deal with your own healthcare, your own emergent issue. And then at the same time, like trying your best to be sensitive to like the, the emotional needs of the healthcare provider so as not to like scare them off or so as not to like make it a scenario where it's honestly going to be damaging to your own health like in a later sense because if you get marked as a med seeker like that's not only a note on your chart that is a flag that pops up on your chart the minute you walk in the door the minute they search for your name. So it's one thing if they were to put like at the bottom of your progress note from five years ago that said, hey, patient, you know, was a little combative or patient was, you know, obviously upset or whatever. But like all it takes is one, excuse my language, one asshole to bark in your chart that you're a med seeker, that you are a psych overlay patient, like that could that could ruin your whole care at that institution. Because if it's something like a Kaiser, for example, like their EMR or electronic medical records thing is like universal for all Kaisers. So you could go to the Kaiser in Baldwin Park and then need to go to the one in Beverly Hills and basically have that one irate med student or resident or whatever who marked you as a med seeker like on your flag be something that follows you like literally for the rest of the duration of your healthcare at that institution, which is obviously not fair, obviously going to be something that like negatively impacts your healthcare. Um, but people are vengeful. People are people, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not fair that we have to do these things, but I have just found that that has gotten me the best care. Um, and that's been the best approach that is successful for me. So it's not necessarily what's going to be the best for everybody, but that's just what I've found. And, um, you know, also putting myself in the shoes of a healthcare professional, like that's how I would hope to be treated as well, even though it's not, you know, necessarily like feasible all the time. It's just, that's just my two cents on it, I suppose. Well, and now we have things are politicized. They are, um, 
uh, the opioid health crisis. <laughs> um, right. And I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that because I don't know how you feel about this. And that's actually a real question I have for you. And if you disagree with everything we've said, please tell me because I don't know this side of it. And that's why I was so excited to have you on the show. And I'm perfectly happy to hear anyone who dissents from me. I have a teenager. I get to hear it all the time. <laughs> um, but when you're talking about these things of um, like it's down to a personal opinion on someone's opinion on you on whether they discuss you being a drug seeker or not, this has now gotten to a point where it's politicized on just our pain medication has now become a political issue. The opioid crisis that our our <laughs> can't even say it. Sorry, um, uh, but our our leadership in quotations right. um, they have created yeah. this very um, combative. I'm trying to, like, code words so bad here. Um, (laughs) It's become quite an issue on whether people should be taking opioid pain medication or not without actually looking at chronic pain or any other options that could be available. And I'm curious what your viewpoint is, and please feel free to disagree with me. I want to actually hear what someone else has to say who has more experience with this than I do and from a different side. Um, I would say that just like first and foremost as a healthcare professional, like <clears throat> I don't think that the role of the government is to dictate the care of patients. Um, I think that there's certainly like fairness in trying to protect patients by like having guidelines in place from a general sense. Um, but politicians are not healthcare providers, and I'm not a politician, you know, so I'm not going to pretend to know the ins and outs of like every step of legislation and policy making, but nor should a health or a, a politician pretend to know all of the complexities of human physiology and pain medicine. You know, um, it's really it concerns me that there's such a <clears throat> a strict stance and a really, in my opinion, sensationalized um, issue with opioids because I think it really negatively affects chronic pain patients. Um, the, there has been no long-term studies to indicate if opioids taken as prescribed end up with addiction. Um, the longest study that's been done is a six-week study following people who have knee surgery, so not chronic pain patients, not people with you know, multi-systemic diseases, um, not people, I'm sorry, your shoulder went out again. Um, not people with, um, you know, significant, um, physical limitations who are taking these meds as prescribed in order to function. So, um, it really concerns me that there seems to be a lot of overlap with when politicians talk about opioids, they think addicts, they don't think pain patients and they're not the same thing. Um, so I really think that a lot of this policy that's currently in place has been really damaging for a lot of patients. Um, I think it's like a very one size fits all approach, which is never an appropriate, you know, approach to take with healthcare in my opinion, because there is no one size fits all. Um, so it really, um, it disappoints me that with as much science and evidence as there is to show that when people take these medications as prescribed, the conversion rate into full-on addiction and so forth is, you know, vastly overinflated. Um, it's really something like less than 5% of people who take medicines as prescribed end up abusing or diverting or becoming addicts. Um, and it's it's really unfortunate because it... it so negatively impacts so many people who are using these medicines just to like <clears throat> be functional members of society, like just to be able to like get around their home and not be in agony every day. And um, it's concerning to me because I feel like it's a little bit of overreach um, to have policies in place. Like the Medicare policy now is that patients are not allowed to have no- more than <clears throat> 90 mil equivalents of morphine, which is the equivalent of, like, if you were taking, like, five Percocet a day, which may sound like a lot to some people, but when you, you know, extrapolate that into people who have had five, six, seven back surgeries, people who have had, you know, years and years and years on these medications, and now all of a sudden their insurance is going to cut them off at 90, like, 
there's patients that are taking, you know, equivalents of two and 300 milligrams per day, which is obviously not ideal, but like if it's a <clears throat> scenario where there's no cure for the disease that this patient has, if there is no alternative, if they live in a state where cannabis is criminalized and they're going to go to jail and potentially lose their livelihood for seeking out alternative methods of relief, when we have things like Kratom available to people who, you know, want to explore these things and they're going to potentially be criminalized for trying to alleviate their suffering, like something's very wrong with that picture. And so we don't leave a lot of room for any other pain relief measures besides opioids. Um, insurance doesn't cover more than 12 to 24 sessions of physical therapy total. So if you have, you know, a knee injury, a hip injury and a shoulder injury, like you better stratify, you know, eight visits per, per, uh, you know, body part. If you want to have, you know, your psychological and emotional stressors uh, regarding PTSD and regarding chronic pain, regarding, you know, independence from chronic illness addressed, like, you better hope your insurance covers, you know, more than 10 visits of uh, counseling or 10, you know what I'm saying? So, like, we don't have a lot of... Uh, a lot of systems in place to support people with chronic pain management. Um, I know my insurance, for example, doesn't cover my vitamins. It doesn't cover my aquatic therapy that I do. It doesn't cover my chiropractic. It doesn't cover my craniosacral. It doesn't cover my acupuncture. It doesn't cover, you know, my TENS unit. Like, all of the things that I use to remain a somewhat functional person, like, those things aren't covered by insurance. And I'm very fortunate that I, you know, have a dual-income household but not everybody is that lucky, and especially people who are on fixed incomes from disability or people who are maybe in a single income household. Like, work is literally the difference between some of these people having a roof over their head and not having a roof over their head, having food in their mouths and having their children go hungry. And so, any tool that allows a patient who takes them responsibly to remain functioning at work without adverse side effects, without, you know, indicators of abuse or diversion. I, in my opinion, if the benefits outweigh the risks of that opioid regimen, then the patient should be able to stay on it. Like, it doesn't matter if it exceeds 90 mil equivalents. Like, okay, it's not ideal, but until insurance or until, like, a politician can present me with a better protocol for my individual patient who I've spent hours with over the course of, you know, however many visits, who I've reviewed their history extensively, like outside of the clinic visit, time that I'm not like billing for or getting paid for, but time that I think is necessary to treat a human being with the most, you know, capable understand or the most capacity that I can. Like those are things that all of us, or not all of us, some of some healthcare providers do in order to keep their patients healthy and to basically be disincentivized to do that, you know, to make it so that, you know, in order to keep our solo practice doors open, we have to see 40 patients a day each um, so that we have to do all of our documentation at home. Like, there's really a squeeze from all angles, you know, like it's a squeeze on doctors, it's a squeeze on patients, it's, I think this whole thing has been really inflated and um, is an unfortunate consequence of, there not being a lot of other options for patients, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a mixed bag. There's lots of, lots of layers to it. It's kind of a web, but, um, I do think that the people who have been most profoundly impacted by it in a negative sense are the patients who are suffering. And these people are already suffering like more than any other human beings that I've ever encountered on the planet. And to give them, you know, another thing to worry about, like, is my insurance going to cover my medicine this month? Or give them, you know what I mean? Like, dealing with chronic health issues should be enough for a human being to handle in a, like, you know, a first world country. We should have one. <laughs> basic Do we still get to call ourselves that, really? Right? I know. Like, Do we? A developed nation, and we can't provide food safety and shelter to our citizens. And when people have, like, the audacity to stand up and say, like, hey, we should all have our basic human needs met. like uh, Clean water? <laughs> like, yeah. Or yeah. we treat the people coming here with the level of care, concern, and love. I, okay, never mind. Sorry. I, I'm going to, nah. Yeah. No, we're. Yeah. I, uh, yeah like, okay, I'm going to yeah. locate something if I keep getting angry. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm going to head back for just a second because you brought up some 
really great stuff. I've been trying to take notes to remember what to ask you. Um, but you brought up something that we, we had a panel about, Karis and I, about the cost of being sick. And you went through a whole bunch of things that help you function, none of which are addictive, but are not covered. And without the, because I'm on disability, and it is I am grateful for, it definitely helps my family. But if I was on my own without another income, we would be homeless. There is no way we could even afford a room and like that I could even feed my children on what disability covers, let alone like there's this laser that my physical therapist has, which when I dislocate, she's able to just put a laser over it and then we can pretty much get it back into place and functional without dilated or any of the other like extreme stuff. But that laser costs $10,000. It's not something I can right. keep at my home. Right. And all exactly. these new, like super cool things that they keep coming out with where people are like, I don't know, why don't you just take marijuana for it? Like, well, first <laughs> marijuana is awesome. Cannabis, CBD with THC. That's fantastic help. It does not stand up to a femur dislocation. And right. if we're going to talk about the cost, California just passed a tax law, which is punitive and cruel and it makes it's like 20%. Yeah. And it makes um for any of us who use this as medicine because I do use it for my fibromyalgia pain, it costs me close to $300 a month which I no longer use because I can't afford that. Mm-hmm. So all these things that could like even decrease our painkiller use as inflated and then you have the VA hospitals which I just wanted to put the veterans in here where the VA hospitals decided the CDC guidelines, which were just guidelines. That's that's all the CDC was. As far as I know, if I'm wrong, please tell me. But in my research, CDC guidelines were guidelines. They were not set up to handle that 1% of people who have been hit by landmines or have had multiple back surgeries or neck surgeries or brain surgeries. Like, Right. And the well, CDC, and the CDC guidelines no. are um, geared for primary care physicians. Yeah. So those guidelines of, you know, not of, of uh, not ever prescribing more than 50 mil equivalents and, you know, having patients drug screen and all of these things, like, this is for primary care physicians. Um, and the CDC guidelines also indicate that you shouldn't test for cannabis in legal states. Um, so it's there's lots of things that these institutions do that are not consistent with CDC guidelines. And I feel like um, a lot of specialists can sometimes like hide behind those guidelines and say like, oh, well, sorry, we're tapering you off your meds because the guidelines say this. And it's like, no, like those guidelines are for primary care providers. They're not for pain management specialists. Um, Your medical decision making as a physician, as a specialist in chronic pain should be the justifiable reasons. Like if you're giving someone, you know, 600 Norcos a month for, you know, an ankle sprain or something like that, that's not appropriate. But if you have a patient who literally every joint in their body can dislocate, who's had brain surgery, who's had neck surgery, and there's no cure for their disease, like think about like the real human impact of not treating their pain. Like if I, I put to you that if we could treat these, this pain adequately with other measures or um, back to what we were saying about the gender and like racial bias in medicine, like if someone would have listened to these poor women 20 years ago, then they probably wouldn't be in my chronic pain office. You know, like if someone would have taken their word for it, like I have literally patients who have like deformities because their foot was broken and their doctor wouldn't do an x-ray you know, and they just ended up walking around on a broken foot, like taking medications and basically having to have like partial amputation or like having like major reconstructive surgery. And it's like over a freaking x-ray because someone thought that they were like making up their ankle pain 20 years ago. Like they wouldn't need to be in chronic pain management if someone would have done their job in the ER or if someone would have done their job at the primary care level, you know? So it's really unfair because I feel like pain management gets this stigma of like, oh, like you're just giving all these patients pain meds and this and that. And like, you guys are, you know, just putting people on pain meds and getting them hooked. And it's like, uh, no, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's, that's not what we're doing. We're, uh, trying to help human beings live the best quality of life that they can. And especially for people who have incurable diseases, it sometimes moves into more of a palliation role, like a palliative care role. Um, and for the government and for companies like work comp companies to basically just deny it because they say, well, this isn't consistent with guidelines. Like 
that's that's absurd to me. Like that's that's inhumane. Like we don't let our dogs suffer that way. You know? like, I I don't imagine like how it, is it, it that people have my... better empathy levels and I love my please don't get me wrong no animal rights people email me I love my dogs but how right. is it that we've gotten to this point where our empathy works better for a for something that does not share our species level where we are just so willing to walk past people in pain and suffering and someone had said something and I, I'm gonna get wrong who but it was basically the idea that one of the biggest issues we have right now in our country is that people think that if it's not their problem that it doesn't exist, that there's such an issue with empathy that they are not experiencing it, that it is not a problem. Yeah, it's called privilege. <laughs> yes, it is. Thank you. I use that word a lot. <laughs> and yeah. Let's be really clear. Privilege is not a bad thing in that it's not your no. fault. I, you don't, you are not more at fault for having privilege yeah. than someone who doesn't. And that's what I try to explain to my kids is that's not your fault that you were born to privilege. It's your responsibility to see it and to see where others don't have it and to reach back and make sure that you level a playing field. That is what you are working towards. You are working towards being a person who can help make others' lives better. And right. that's, at least from, from a privileged person's perspective, that is what I try to teach my kids. If I'm doing it wrong, please feel free to kindly correct me. But that is no, I, where I try to, like, draw a line because I feel I, like, yeah. <laughs> I wish there were more people like you, honestly. Like, it's... it's you may be the only like, person who says that. My mother is like, there's a reason you were an only child. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... um. It's remarkable to me the the level of disdain that human beings carry for one another, you know, because they were born on the different side of an imaginary line, you know, 50 miles south of where I live, you know, or because they were, you know, because they speak a different language or because they present in a different like physical capacity, like like we've placed so much emphasis on like someone's ability to work and like their utility oh. as the marker <laughs> of like whether or not they're a worthy and deserving human being. Like that's, that's crazy to me. Like that's, that's absurd. Like we're all human beings. Like imagine if we just like cared for each other and, you know, gave each other, you know, baseline levels of respect and care. Like, oh my God, you can't we, do that. That's un-American. <laughs> I know. Well, cause then they're a taker, right? Like if they just want like basic access to healthcare and like clean drinking water in Flint, Michigan, right? Like, you know, then, then or, hey, don't build a pipeline for oil next to right? our water. Uh, okay. Sorry. I'm going to go epileptic soon. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, you're, uh, you're saying so many things that are so important. And one of the things I wanted to like claw into is the idea of this, this American myth that I think is one of our most damaging, which is the uh, bootstrap myth that if you just pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and just showed a little more fortitude, you could push through it. And I can tell you right now, I was a ballerina for years on completely broken legs. And when I say that, that's not, that's not, not pushing it too far. I when I finally X-rayed my legs, I had thousands of fractures up and down my Gosh. my legs because I was bootstrapping it because I believed in that. Like if you just push harder, you can right. push through anything, and that's not true or healthy. Like, <laughs> right? No, I think that um, you know that's something that's shaped by our policymakers and our people in power who like control you know, the dissemination of information, you know, so that typically tends to be older white men who have lived lives of privilege where like the idea of like, well, yeah, but what if I don't work and I'm homeless? Like, that's just something that is not even like on their same wavelength, you know, no, or and like, it's so it, foreign to them. And without, okay, so we had, um, I'm up in uh, Northern California or in Southern California. And up here, we had a mayor who's going to be running for governor. And I am not I'm not endorsing anyone, by the way. I just want to say this because I think that this one thing he did is what politicians should be enforced to do, is that in San Francisco, we have a very underserved, underprivileged area called Hunter's Point. And I believe it was Hunter's Point. I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, go ahead and tell me. But it was a very underserved area of San Francisco when he was mayor. And while all of the people were there trying to make policy about this area, he said, absolutely not. He put everyone in cars and made everyone go to this area and walk around, interview shop owners, people who are sitting there. And that's Gavin Newsom. There's a lot I like it on. There's some things I don't. But that is one thing that, like, not endorsing. I'm just saying all people who are creating policy 
should be forced out of their offices. They should not be spending time at a desk. They should. I go with the Pope on this, and I'm not Catholic, but I go with the Pope because when the new Pope took over, he told the cardinals, get rid of your desks. You're never going to be there. Don't even have an office. You're going to be out on the street talking to the people you serve. And right. that's become one of the biggest issues is our politicians here in the United States, and I'm sure some of you in other countries will say this is the same for you. They don't serve us anymore. And the idea that someone who is not able to bootstrap or is not even willing to bootstrap, I'm not, that should never be a question. It's not a moral issue for food, clean drinking water, access to education, and housing is a human right. And just because someone's a human, that should be granted. It should not be something you have to prove. Agreed. This, and, and so what cracks me about this, and I'm just going to have this one little thing in here, is what they do think is absolutely human right is for rich people to get richer in this country. That Agreed. we don't question uh, how many trillion-dollar tax cut for the wealthy, billion-dollar tax cut for the wealthy. No one said anything about that. Right. That that was just something that was their right to have. And right. there was no moral discussion on we should drug test people who take tax breaks of over $10,000, but they said there should be drug tests for someone who's getting food. People on disability. Yeah. 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 No. And it's, it's, I think that because this, this country in general is places more value on things than humans. Like, uh. like my, um, <laughs> my husband and I like this quote, um, from Jimi Hendrix. And he says, when, um, what did he say? When the power of love overcomes the love of power, then the world will know peace. Go uh, Hendrix. And, and I know, right? Isn't that like beautiful? But um, I mean, I like it, to quote John Lennon, but he was such a jerk to so many people. <laughs> and I'm like, I love the song Imagine. I love it so much, but I have a hard time with him personally. Yeah, fair enough. And, you know, I just, I think that there's, um, there's this American dream and marketing in general, like really preys on our emotional, like desire to want more things, you know, like, Oh, just like be a size two and then you'll be happy. Get this car. And then you'll, you know, that problem with your wife. Oh, don't worry about it. Just get a Lexus. Like all of these like things that we see on TV are so fake. Like they're not, they're not real indicators of happiness. Like I lived that way for, you know, my whole somewhat able-bodied life where I was like, well, maybe if I'm skinnier, I'll be happier. Maybe if I make this much money, then, you know, and we can go on vacation, then I'll be more fulfilled and I'll like not have negative self-talk anymore. And I feel like the attention to mental health that we give in this country, like it's been a generational thing where like, especially men, like you stuff your feelings way down there and don't ever <laughs> let them out. Like those kind of feelings, like it literally breeds like hatred and just and basically you know dissatisfaction and when um when we all feel like that on the inside because we're not able to talk about our feelings we're not able to talk about you know candid mental health concerns without being labeled like a crazy person or something like that like and there's and even if you are like a quote crazy person like there's no more like places for you to go thanks to the Reagan era like there's no such thing as like inpatient psychiatric like halfway houses like they used to have for people who you know needed that type of support so the dismantling of our mental health services I think has directly led to this like really warped view of like what's actually important in life like your health and your happiness and the safety of your family and like having enough food to eat and that's enough you know like that's that's should be what we hope for for all of our citizens like and just because, you know, you think you should have a bigger house or you're entitled to a mansion or entitled to a vacation home and you somehow are threatened by, like, those less fortunate from taking it away from you. Like, it, it blows my mind that, you know, there's this, like, whole concept of, like, people taking our jobs or, like, you know, like, no, it was it was robots <laughs> taking our jobs. It wasn't immigrants. It was automation. Like, it was forward scientific progress like it's not you know what I mean but because people can't talk about like wow I feel really inadequate because I can't provide for my family anymore imagine if we had like a service in place where you could go and people would you know say hey like let's talk about this and let's give you vocational rehab and like let's help you you know do what makes you happy and give you some purpose and like make sure that you know you don't have to worry about your pain being a barrier to your children eating you know or like being a barrier to your perceived self-worth as a human being like where would we be but 
you know, people got to have their, you know, billions of dollars for whatever reason. And I feel like uh, in that sense, when we squabble with each other and try to say like, oh, no, healthcare shouldn't be a right because they're all just leeches or whatever. Like it's, I, I use the analogy with my husband that it's like rich people are the humans at the table and we're all the dogs like fighting over the scraps when we have that kind of mentality toward each other. And then we look at people who are less fortunate, fortunate than us, like, you know, in this analogy, like the ants trying to get the little crumbs off of our scraps and saying like, oh, well, those ants are taking our crumbs. Like, instead of looking up and being like, um, well, the 1% is like hoarding a significant amount of wealth that could like literally pay all of our student loans, literally could pay for like fixing healthcare, could literally solve the Flint, Michigan crisis. Like Jeff Bezos is the CEO of Amazon, is the richest person in the world, could literally solve Flint, Michigan a hundred times and still have enough and still be the richest man in the world. Like I just, (laughs) there's so many layers of this and then it like trickles down into like, people with disabilities essentially being discarded, like having this, this such warped idea of like what human value is, um, that it's not literally less important than the care that we feel for our animals. Like it's, it's, it's really like, there's so many layers behind it. And I'm sorry, I know that must sound like awfully depressing, but it's just, you know, those are the, those are the powers that be like, those are the, things in place those are the lobbyists like from big pharma that keep things in place like the suppression of insurance covering complementary and alternative medicines and leaving really no choice but for people to be on opioids because insurance doesn't cover anything else thanks to pharma lobbyists and then now you know there's this whole oh people are dying from these drugs like you know it's it's uh it's all like it's like a game to the people at the top, you know, like we're just the casualties, it seems like. So it's it's really, really unfortunate. So I think honestly, change is going to come from like grassroots people, people who like sit on both sides of this like I do and saying like, hey, like this isn't right. Like <laughs> these are the things that are really happening. And like, don't be mad at your doctor. Be mad at like pharmaceutical companies. Be mad at the people that you vote into power who are like making these these legislative changes on your behalf, but not in your best interest. Like these are the call your congressperson and representative. Email them if you are having anxiety issues on the phone or if it's too hard for you. Whatever way you can, they legally have to read when you write them a letter or a fax Mm -hmm. or an email. Please do so. It's the best thing ever. Um, We are going way over and (laughs) I'm about ready to faint. So (laughs) I want to know... It's been three days of, oh, my God. (laughs) Um, But this has been fantastic. If you are healthy enough and able enough, I would love for you to start your own podcast interviewing people who are on the other side of it. You have connections that none of us have. If you are willing to do that, I will blast it everywhere I can. If you would like to write for the blog and do even, like, a blog post where you are willing to take questions from some of our listeners. We could do that, or we could do another panel. Um, I adore you. You're fantastic. And I don't just adore you because you agree with me. I have plenty of people in my life I adore who do not agree with me. I have lots of people in my life who do not agree with me. That is not a qualifier for me to like someone. It's kindness and respect that I I respond to. Um, But you're fantastic, and thank you so much for taking this time. I really appreciate it. Sure thing, yeah. And if you want to, like, do a repeat one, like, if you want to have one where we can talk about cannabis or we can talk about all of the different like pain hacks. I know we kind of like went off the rails, but it's been a pleasure talking with you. And I'm good at off the rails. Kiros will back you up. I am awesome at off the rails, but yes, if you're willing to do like uh, every month or every other month, a little, like we'll have a topic on pain management and you and I can, can go with it. Let's do it. We will schedule this off air. Please go to our show notes. We are going to have a wealth of information in the show notes. Thank you so much, everyone. Um, We're going to wrap this up now and uh, I'm forgetting what I'm doing, but if you want to be really, really kind to us, 
best place to leave nice, embarrassingly nice comments is on iTunes. Please go do that. Hit that subscribe button. We are honored and amazed at the numbers of people that we had 13,000 downloads last month. So yeah. thank you. Um, thank you. And all over the world, I, I am so shocked my voice travels so much better than I do. So since I can't, thank you for <laughs> allowing me to travel over to your countries and your homes deeply appreciate that hit the subscribe and please 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 go to our show notes there is going to be a lot for you there so until next week be kind be gentle and be a badass